Welcome to Altus Insights podcast series with Ray and Marlin, hosted by me, Avi. This podcast will cover monthly market updates and construction cost impacts across major markets in Canada. So we're going to talk about the Greater Toronto Area Municipal Benchmarking Study, second edition, which is great because now we can compare it to the first edition. And I believe Brescon did something about five, six years ago, which comes up with similar conclusions. So we got Daryl with us from our economics department. Um, Daryl, you want to maybe introduce yourself and then just give a little background maybe to the report as well for everybody so they know what we're talking about? Sure. Um, so I'm Senior Director at Altus Group and the Economic Consulting Team or Division or whatever you want to call it. I've been with Altus for about 15 years now. Um, so the first version of the study we did was in 2020 for, for build. Uh, the second version is out now. Um, the kind of idea behind the studies is to put some metrics and put some objective data behind things like government charges, how they, how they compare across municipalities, approval timelines, but also the things that help get up applications to the complete application stage quicker. So things like putting up terms of reference, uh, for studies that you have to submit with your application, all the other things that help get applications through the system as quickly as possible, to kind of to show where the kind of path of least resistance might be uh, in the GTA. And as uh, Ray was saying just before this, I think it's a fantastic report because it basically says everything I've been posting on LinkedIn for the last year or so is definitely accurate. Slow approvals, impact and affordability. So I think the best way to walk through this podcast is actually the executive summary is absolutely great, fantastic, and you have key findings. So I figured the best way to do this is maybe we'll wander through the key findings. Myself and Ray, we can add some color to them. And I think then that way someone can go download the report. But I think the key findings really just drive right at the issues and there's a handful of them. So it gives us the perfect length of time. So I know the first one was the affordability concerns and regional demographics. And it's interesting, I read this and I saw a chart online somewhere else. I don't know if it was Stats Canada. And it really surprised me in the GTA, how many people have been moving around and then how many areas are in Toronto that are just completely stable or shrinking, but then other areas are growing rapidly. So Daryl, maybe if you want to just sort of expand on that a little bit, because I think that's pretty much where the key findings were heading with this. Yeah, the, the, whole, the entire chapter two of our report looks at <clears throat> kind of the outcome of all of the affordability issues that the other chapters are trying to objectively measure, but the reasons why there's an affordability crunch in the region or supply crunch. Um, so yeah, we look at all sorts of different movements of people and demographic movements of people, both within the region, so into or out of the GTA, into or out of Ontario, into or out of Canada. Um, and there's, like you said, Merlin, there's been, and I think some data just dropped yesterday, which is maybe why you saw some, some charts posted on Twitter or the like, yeah. um, we had out migration, net out migration anyway, from Ontario to other parts of Canada has accelerated. It was already accelerating kind of prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic seems to have made it a perfect storm. And, um, the net, net the net outflows are growing uh, significantly, which is, and they're going to places like Alberta. Quebec for the first time had a positive inflow of people from Ontario rather than out to Ontario from Quebec for the first time in 50 years. Um, that's a massive change from the historic pattern of people coming from Quebec to Ontario for jobs. Now it's the other way around. People are going from Ontario to Quebec, maybe even just Gatineau, but they're going to Quebec uh, for affordable, more affordable housing. Yeah. yeah, and that's what surprised me is the drive around the populations. With all the, a lot of the immigration, obviously a massive portion of further so comes into Ontario. Yeah. And then basically realizes you can't afford to live here. And now that everyone's getting pushed out. And I, I know even the, the demographics as well, it's the 25 to 44. So the people are probably providing the most 
economic input into the province are the people leaving just to get a house. Yeah, and those are people from people who work at McDonald's and no judgment, I used to work at McDonald's, but people who work at McDonald's all the way up to your doctors. So the 25 yeah. to 44 is a massive, it's about half of the labor supply. Um, and they're the young professionals you should be investing in and keeping in your region because a doctor today, if you keep them in the region as a doctor 20 years from now, if they're 45. So, Hey, Daryl, is that yeah. also because of the whole job flexibility? I know we talk about demographics and ages, but with the, with the pandemic, I know you, you, you mentioned it, but it, it allows people that type of um, flexibility to keep their job in Toronto, but then move to Nova Scotia and, and, and other places. And certain provinces are taking advantage of that. You know, every day you're, you see all these signs or hear on the radio about uh, moving to Alberta on, 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 um, on based on affordability and the employment side. But do you think that sort of really accelerated um, before? It was bad before, but now there's a little bit more flexibility in the workplace, especially the hybrid model. It certainly contributed. I'm not sure how much it's affected things. I think the housing affordability is probably the primary driver, and then people find jobs when they get there. It's, it's probably a household by household case basis as to understanding why people are moving. But the numbers are showing that people are moving um, much higher to much higher rates than they had been, and um, then certainly more than are coming in uh, from other places of Canada. Used to be Ontario was a net attractor. Now they're kind of repelling people away. Yeah, so perhaps it's not a big leap to say Alberta and Quebec, and I know we're going to talk about fees in a moment. We know especially Quebec is very attractive from a municipal fee point of view. Perhaps that their housing policies might actually be a bit better than Ontario, and Ontario not only needs to change the housing policy around the affordability for people here, but if we want to carry on attracting the top talent and the business, this is actually much bigger than just how much does a house or apartment cost? The whole economy is going to get affected if they don't do something quick. Yeah, housing is a labor supply issue and labor is a housing issue. They are, it's all interconnected, so you can't yeah. have one without the other, for sure. And then the other bit, that's my favorite bit, was that the next key finding was around municipal processes and requirements, long approval timelines. And I have to say, I looked at the chart, and when I was looking at how much longer things have got over the last years, I was amazed at the num how high it was. Like official plan amendment was 51% more, zoning bylaw amendment 43%. And this was just the averages. This wasn't even the worst person. This was the average. Yeah. And we took out a lot of outliers from that. There's some that are eight, 10 years old. What we tried to do was balance the median to get it as close to the average as possible. So we didn't have yeah. those outliers kind of skewing the results too much. So this is netting out a lot of long range, sometimes cursed applications. Every municipality has some cursed applications that just sit there forever. But um, yeah, and part of this, there could be some delay associated with the pandemic where council shut down in March and April, maybe kind of caught up in May. So there's maybe some of that baked into the numbers. But on the other hand, there's also the work from home and people have reported improved productivity. So there could be some of the gains from the work from home productivity baked into these numbers too. It's hard to know where they kind of shake out. But nonetheless, I don't think it's anyone, it would surprise anyone um, who works on files and applications like you do, Marlon, and I do, I do a lot of the technical studies. Yeah. It's very rare that I get an approval in my inbox from a happy client. It, they almost all get um, raked over the coals uh, or through counsel or appeal processes. So it's, um, it's not a surprise to me. And I don't think anyone in the industry or even municipalities uh, would be surprised because a lot of the data we have um, was from municipalities where they volunteer data to kind of assist in our study process. We got data from six or seven municipalities um, and yeah. high and low. And so I think a lot of them know where they stand. So I don't 
see a lot of controversy with some of those numbers. They kind of are what they are. No, and it didn't shock me to see the GTA was amongst the worst in Canada. If you've heard some of the other podcasts before, and Johannes has seen some of my rants I do on LinkedIn, I call Toronto the worst in the whole of North America almost when it comes to approvals. And that's more so just on a consistent basis. It's a hard place to do business, I find. Um, so who was the actual worst? Because I know in the key summary, it doesn't have it, but I know in the report, you have who was the worst. Uh, it was Caledon. I think it was. Let me just get the exact. So that so the, so they win the gold prize for the slowest. So maybe Toronto needs to send some people out there to learn how to do it even worse than they do it right now. Toronto's not. Toronto's at thirty-two months. Caledon's thirty-four. So it's probably pretty close. Within, probably within the margin of error. <laughs> probably treat them this and the other thing I saw highlighted, and again, it's something I have seen both on Twitter and LinkedIn, is a lot of developers and also talking to them complaining about how many different types of studies you need to do and how complex it's got right now to actually do an application. Yeah, we spent some time going through I cut just a couple of municipalities just to kind of get a flavor for the range of types of studies uh, an application might have to submit along with the actual planning applications and the drawings from the architects and the planners. We found 42 different technical studies. Some of them are the drawings from architects, but things like wind studies and noise studies and odor studies and archeological studies and air quality studies. There's a long list in our study, um, just from three municipalities, Brampton, Oakville, Toronto, there's 42 different studies that we found. And each one of those, if, if for a single application, they may need 10 to 20, that kind of depends on the planner on the file and what they think they need to see. But each one of those studies you submit is a pain point for a potential appeal that a local citizen can appeal based on the studies that get submitted with the application. So if I do a fiscal impact study, which I do a fair number of, that's essentially opens up that application for appeal on that basis. Same for the odor study or the noise study or the shadow study, which is a particular topic of interest for most planners these days, whether they're even necessary or not. Um, so yeah, it just, and it adds time and money, adds time and money. My understanding of the appeal is basically 200 bucks and someone can walk in off the street and put an appeal in Canada. Like it's not even complicated to do. I think it's $400 now. It's 400 Yeah, because yeah, we had a project where it got delayed. Some random guy just came in apparently, threw down an appeal. It made no sense. But by the time you get rid of it, you've still lost time. Yeah, it could be a year or two easily just to get to yeah. the point where you understand that it was a frivolous appeal. And I've been involved in a few of those and just everyone's on hold until... That goes away basically. Hey, Dara, I, I I get with the city of Toronto with all those reports and those appeals delaying that process, but Caledon doesn't have that same density. Like what, what's slowing down sort of the smaller municipalities with the with the process? I think a lot of times, so high density applications are very complex, especially the larger they get. Um, but also greenfield developments are also pretty complicated as well because you have to install the water pipes and design the roads and build pumping stations and all these other things that come along. Um, so you have it's more of an engineering question when you get to the greenfield developments, whereas I think in high density infill urbanized environments, it's more of a design question or a wind question or a shadow question. So there's they're complicated in different circumstances and for different reasons, but that's why we don't see much of a trend in our analysis about just the greenfield municipalities are quick and the high density municipalities are slow. It's kind of a, a bit of a mixed bag. It depends on the municipality, it seems like. Yeah, and that threw me when we started looking at the average timelines based on the high-rise, and you were looking at the number of units and stuff, and there's no differential. But they, what was interesting was when someone saw that, they sent me a text this morning, and they if the object, because apparently the city wants to claim that the reason it takes longer for certain projects is they want to get a higher quality of development, therefore it takes longer. But 
how does that stand up as a, as a reasoning if every single project of relevant at the size takes the same time? That means they can't be focused on certain high quality developments or complex ones because every project seems to be a disaster across the board. Yeah, if you if based on our data, if you apply for an eight unit building or an 80 unit building or an 800 unit building, it takes about 400 to 500 days. It doesn't seem to matter how big the application is. And so we put that on a metric of number of days for approval per unit approved. So the smaller applications on a marginal day basis in terms of how it clogs up staff time, they are hoarding staff time on a per unit approved basis. So it makes sense to spend 400 days to approve 800 units because you get a lot of supply at the end of the day. And they, there may be more technical considerations, but if you're building an eightplex in an existing neighborhood where there should be existing capacity, it should not take 400 days to approve that development. And you only get eight units approved at the end of that same 400 day period. So the kind of the, the juice is not necessarily worth the squeeze for those applications, unless something changes drastically. And as we see neighborhoods potentially opening up for those smaller, finer, finer grained applications, they're gonna clog up municipal staff and municipal planning time which could be freed up if they were a lot quicker to approve those, then you have more staff time for the larger applications where it may be more warranted uh, to spend time looking at the design of the building and its impacts on streetscaping and transit and the, and the road network or whatever it may need to be looked yeah. at. And I think yesterday there was in the news about the, the governor of California had had enough on a similar subject with these smaller units, commercial reuse units, changing parking lots, and just come out and basically told municipalities, basically, if there's a commercial parking lot or retail and you want to build like a small building, it's just automatically approved, especially for supportable housing. And you start to see as much as 800 units sounds like a lot, it's great. It takes a long time to build. These info projects are the things that can come quickly, get built quickly. Yes. We can use timber, we can use stuff that's, you know, carbon friendly goes in that sustainability thing. And that's the, to me, the having a one size fits all approach to approvals just seems borderline ridiculous. Yeah, and it's, I think also municipalities are a bit hamstrung by the provincial system. And that's one of the findings of the report is when we compare it to other municipalities across the country, they're getting things out in four months, five months. They use development permit systems where it's bang, bang, boom, you go, staff can rubber stamp it and away you go. Whereas here they have to submit, even for a simple eightplex or a 25 unit walk-up building, you have to provide often a zoning bylaw amendment and then sometimes a plan of subdivision, potentially a plan of condominium for sure, site plan. So you have four or five different layers and levels of application requirements that like municipalities are certainly slow, but they're often also just working within the system that the province is handing down to them. And they can't just skip a step. You have to kind of meet provincial policy. Uh, in, in the provincial statutes to be able to give the approvals. I think oftentimes it is the provincial system that's kind of hampering municipal innovation and getting some of this stuff done. Yeah, and, and I think that's where we start to talk about the three levels of government. They just don't, they're not, don't seem to be working together at all. It's almost like they're rowing in separate directions, trying to achieve the same thing, but getting each of us way in the process and actually turning it with a negative result versus positive. Yeah, things like federal immigration targets should know what the housing pipeline looks like before determining what those numbers should look like. Yeah, um, because the housing pipeline is a lot longer than the immigration ability to kind of change gears on the immigration system. So, yeah, there's all sorts of things that should be connected, but they don't really seem to be talking to each other because they are yeah, but, all related. The other complaint we hear a lot is staffing levels, and I think that was I think that was mentioned in the report somewhere about staffing levels. I know City of Toronto had a report to council recently about staffing levels in their planning department, also. Yeah, and they found that basically housing is too expensive to be able yeah. to staff up the people so they could live in Toronto and work in Toronto, 
Um, and also staff turnover and all the other things that I think a lot of companies are dealing with as well. They don't seem to be unique to the private sector or the public sector. It's kind of just an economy-wide issue. Um, but not being able to staff your planning department because housing in your municipality is too expensive for people to afford to live there, to come into work, to approve the housing. It's a bit of a vicious cycle. And we're seeing that in the construction industry as well, where we did a study for Build as well, where we looked at how is the construction industry employment grown and it hasn't. There's basically, there's been no growth in the construction sector, even as the GTA's economy has grown. The construction sector still employs roughly the same number of people because people have to move live to Brant, move to Brantford or London to be able to afford to build a house in the GTA. It's yeah. A bit of a vicious cycle. I, it did amuse me when I saw that the city was complaining about housing affordability and that's why they couldn't hire people. It's kind of, you shot yourself in the foot, then you blame everyone. And then I like a few weeks later, they come out and incre want to increase DCs 46% after they've just said housing isn't affordable. So there's a bit of a <laughs> catch-22 situation. They seem to be creating for themselves there. We can't employ people because housing's too expensive, but let's jack up the price of housing for everybody. And then, yeah. which leads nicely in, because it's almost like I planned the segue, because then you started looking at the um, the municipal charges and how the high rise is getting disproportionately hit now. And you you did a, you were comparing the various um, locations. I didn't actually realize Vaughan was going to be the most expensive. That actually surprised me. I figured that um, the city of Toronto would be much higher up than it is. Yeah, and I think a lot of the reasons, so we, we, we found that, High-rise development, and we used one relatively simple scenario. Um, high-rise development is paying roughly two times on a per square foot basis than low-rise is paying. And that low-rise scenario of ours is a mix of singles and towns. So even that's not just a strictly single detached greenfield development. It's a bit of a mixed, a mixed, uh, mixed product uh, scenario. So and it's almost across the board. Every municipality has a higher per square foot incidence of charges. Then low rise, um, some are higher than others, but the average is about two x on a per square foot basis, and the reason is land values. And the and some charges are directly related to land values, like parkland. It's either percentage of your land value or one hectare per 500 dwelling units at a certain land value of the site. Um, community benefits charges are four percent of land value. Um, Development charges are also indirectly related to land value. Not to get too wonky, but if you understand the calculations in detail. Land value is a major input into the calculation of DCs, which is why you see places like York Region and Toronto with higher DCs than places like London or Windsor or even Ottawa, because the land value is higher in those jurisdictions. And it all impacts the, the rates themselves, but it also results in high density paying about double on a per square foot basis. And um, it's it's becoming a bit of a problem in terms of Vaughn. Vaughn was top at for the high rise at $152 per square foot. Um, again, that's partially parkland to DCs, but for one example, their DC, think about between that and the region, their DC is about $65,000 per single attached unit for roads. And yeah. that's kind of proportionate amounts for, for other types of uh, residential units. So there's a lot of me money being collected for things like roads when they don't, may not necessarily need that much money for roads. No, and I, I know we've mentioned this in a previous one about there was uh, the study that showed how much money the municipalities were sat. And I think it was in the Toronto Star in December, and there was some horrendous number in the billions because they can't spend the money as fast as it's coming in. Now, I know the city of Toronto is claiming it's not sat on $2 billion worth of parkland. I'm not sure anyone necessarily believes that they're not sat on money for parkland because they haven't built a lot of parks in a while. But um, it's definitely interesting times. I think the other thing that is, is just how quickly the rates are increasing as well. It seems to be disproportionately increasing. I looked at this the other day 
going back to before TGS was brought in and the increase in DCs before TGS came in when it was down at like $10,000 a unit in Toronto. And now they're going to hit $80,000 eventually in the two bedrooms. It's insane the level of increase that they've applied to apartments versus other types of housing. Yeah, it's it's basically an indirect output of land values. Um, yeah. Um, which is why your DCs are going up so much. Is And there's been changes to the DC Act to allow more funding envelope room for things like transit and affordable housing as well as being maximized a bit more than it used to. Um, yeah, so, so rather than get through property taxes, it's screwed the new home buyer. That seems to be the, the entire approach. Yeah, property taxes are uh, not a popular avenue for funding when development charges are right there because development charge or people in new housing units don't even know what they're being charged and they don't vote so it's a pretty convenient no. tool. so it's i mean it's kind of negative is there any positive that came out of this i mean i i noticed that some of this around the planning features and stuff some of the some of the municipalities seem to be doing some stuff that should be positive it doesn't seem to have brought time around but is a sort of rather than go for all negatives was there some positive stuff that came out like some some municipalities getting better at something yeah, we've, we've found since the pandemic started, there's been, and it's not across the board, but in some or most municipalities, um, the attention to detail on their websites has gotten better in terms of you could find their zoning a bit easier in a, in a more modern interface than, a, than going to a planning desk and getting a 600-page document like I used to have to. Um, and having terms of reference for studies available and posted on websites um, and development application status trackers, whether you can see what's going on in, in a municipality or recent approvals, that's gotten better. Um, but relative to the cost of development or the time it takes to get approved, I think that's a relatively minor minor improvement on, on the overall picture, which is, as you say, not good. Hey, Daryl, you, you actually had three in your executive summary that saw municipalities improve. Do you know what, recall what those three were and, what, and why did they improve since the last study? Um, yeah, so we saw in terms of timelines, we saw Whitby improve, Brampton improve, and Bradford, West Willenberry. Improve. Was there a special sauce in those municipalities? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. It could just be that the the 50 or so applications that we looked at in the 2020 study were kind of less obvious approvals than the ones that came through in the 2022 studies. They have different data sets, so there's no overlap between the two. So it could just be a bit of random chance, or maybe they got staffed up. It's really hard to say without working in those planning departments. Yeah, so basically the the reading of this then is it's got worse, it's going to carry getting on worse, and the only solution is everyone needs to move to Calgary. You see, the land and development, my solution was everyone's going to end up in Windsor because we're just going to get chased out for affordability, and we used to have all of the Canadians pinned up against the, the Detroit River trying to find somewhere to live um, until another border wall gets thrown up there to stop us crossing south, but... Um, do you see any sort of movement in the future, Daryl, on this, or is this just yeah. going to stay depressingly bad? No, I, th I th there are some signs. So we did get, like, like I said, some voluntary contributions from municipalities where they provided us from some pretty robust data sets that we incorporated into some of these numbers. And I think there's some pretty uniform agreement across the planning industry. I don't want to speak for everybody, obviously, but that we need the, to improve the data standards of what gets approved, how much is getting approved. Just think of like on the public health crisis we had the last two and a half years, if we were flying blind without data, it didn't know what vaccination rates were, we didn't know what infection rates were, hospitalization rates. We Imagine if we didn't know that. Well, now we have a housing crisis and a lot of planners are basically flying blind on how much is getting approved, what is getting approved, where it's getting approved. Um, I don't think that should continue much longer. I think there's some appetite within municipalities to 
start reporting data. So on the finance side in Ontario, municipalities have to provide a financial information return to the ministry every year where they say, here's our, it's a long document, so we won't get it. It provides top to bottom financial details. I don't see why we shouldn't be have the same thing for the planning side, for housing approvals. So we know what the pipeline is and we can match the federal immigration targets or where the immigration is being allocated if that if that's something we can control, but match it to where the housing supply is coming online soon or five or three or four or five years from now. Um, I don't see why we should have to fly blind in terms of planning our region so that Oshawa can know what's going on in Clarington or Clarington can know what's going on in Milton. It feels like that should all be public knowledge and more transparently reported. Well, you, you'd think the province and the feds would like to know that, again, for doing future planning. Where can people go? Where can we accommodate them? Where do we have shortages? Where's the labour shortage? What sort of people, are, uh, skill sets are we trying to attract? You know, you, you'd think all of this would be data-driven, but I don't know. I'm always sceptical of Stats Canada. I won't go down the road when, when we ask them questions, we don't understand the answers half the time. But I get sceptical because I think you're right. The data is just, it's iffy. It's at best. At, at best, iffy at best. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other challenge we're going to have is if uh, if everyone keeps stopping building low-rise, the industrial land value is going to be higher. We're going to have everyone building warehouses instead of houses at this pace. Well, that, and, and yeah, <laughs> you're you're seeing that with um, the competition uh, uh, with with land and pushing those prices up, and with industrial going up by anywhere from fifteen to twenty-five percent in rents on an annualized basis with some of the newer stuff. It, it just adds to the issue with the land prices and land is still the dominant activity for for commercial investment activity across Canada and there's definitely not gonna, we're not going to see a slowdown in the GTA or even the surrounding areas are starting to bulk up as well so it, it's definitely not uh, land that is, is going to provide a solution here. No, and that's the challenge when the entire system is based on land value and it's all interconnected and we've got other asset types pulling prices, pushing prices to high levels. It's just, it all comes together kind of in a dire situation for housing affordability. Unless we all move to Texas with Johannes. So I think that I think that covers off all the topics in the report. Again, I thought it was a fantastic report. I actually really enjoyed looking through it. It's going to start appearing in my market deck a lot. So thanks for joining us, Daryl. It was a great, I think it was a fantastic report. And I think it's going to be very useful for the industry now to have some good discussions with the municipalities, with something that actually backs up what I think everyone's been saying for years. So thanks very much for joining us. Um, and we'll say good night. No, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Daryl.